Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche, or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. My guest today really needs no introduction. If you've been in the CME field for more than a hot minute, you'll know that Graham McMahon, MD, is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education. And today we're talking about integrity and trust in CME. Welcome, Graham. The pleasure is mine, Alex. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to see you. So my first question is, obviously, you know, please tell listeners who you are and share a little bit about what you do. Well, who you are is kind of a question of identity, really. And I suppose I, I have lots of them. Obviously, I am a, a leader, a CEO here at a, a regulatory organization, ACCME. And I've been here for coming up on eight years, remarkably. Time has flown. Mm. But I'm also uh, a doctor, a practicing doctor. I, I volunteer at a local federally qualified health center as an endocrinologist, which is where my training is. But I'm also um, a dad, a husband, a runner, someone who, uh, who loves to be an educator and to teach, to innovate, to change. And uh, all of those things make up who I am. And how did you land in CME? <laughs> I think a lot of people land in CME almost by accident. But that largely happened to me to some degree too. As someone who was growing up through medical school with an interest in observing my teachers, I think I found myself wondering whether a career in education would be right for me. I remember a lot of people telling me I was too good for that, that I should pursue the standard academic pathways of fundamental science and research initiatives. So I pursued a master's in, in clinical trials, actually, when I was at, at Harvard as a fellow, and oh, interesting. thought I might, I might pursue more quantitative science. But the passion for teaching and learning really drew me in and drew me to my students, to my colleagues, and developing some, you know, applying that passion to my work allowed me to be good at it. Mm-hmm. It's one of those pieces of advice I give other people who, you know, if you follow your heart, you'll be good at it because you're doing what what sustains you and helps you grow as a person. So I found myself teaching a good deal, particularly in diabetes-based care, which is my special area of expertise, but developing new ways of thinking about teaching, 
engaging these sophisticated learners who are our colleagues and kind of inspiring them, giving them what they need to be good at what they want to be at. So I found myself doing more education, continuing education, having more roles as a result in continuing education, and kind of the rest took care of itself. It's interesting when you talk about that draw to teaching and learning. I think so often people who are drawn to education and, and continuing medical education in particular are they are lifelong learners themselves. They are information synthesizers. They are what Clifton Strengths calls intellectualizers, uh, which I'd never heard as a, a noun until, until quite recently, but making connections between lots of different things in order to really get to the core of, of something is, uh, you know, so much of what education and teaching and learning is about. We are kind of focusing on integrity and independence and trust. And in 2020, ACCME published its standards for integrity and independence. What prompted the publication of that particular report? Yeah, our, our community of uh, physicians, of clinicians are sophisticated individuals. They're exceptionally busy and they need a system for supporting their professional development and the application of best practices that meets their needs. And the environment around us has been changing. And we had to evolve to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the community while also addressing some of those threats that were coming down the pike at our community that threatened the integrity of the education that our system was developing. And in particular, our genesis as a regulatory organization came from the observation that clinicians are in a very privileged position of being able to be the only ones who control access to life's changing, life-saving medicines and devices. And when you have control that's very specific and aligned with you, the organizers of those entities that uh, deliver those services can have a strong vested interest in making sure that their device is the one that comes to mind or their medicine is the one that comes to mind. Mm. And they're also very interested in promoting their products and services through continuing education because, of course, education is not just a convening entity, but it's a, a communications entity, and it's one that is trusted and has credibility. So if you have a brand, that is a whole sequence of identities that you can align with to try and enter the minds and prescribing practices of this fundamentally limited audience. So we saw a variety of emerging threats to that system that were trying to work around the standards that preceded them. We saw a variety of new constructs of relationships with physicians and clinicians and prescribers that industry was trying to build that were threats to how we operate a system that delivers high-quality high content, that's trustable, that's accurate, meaningful, impactful, that keeps industry out, but also allows education to flourish and grow and thrive and meet the very rapidly changing needs of our learner community. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those threats look like? Yeah, I think a lot of them were based on relationships. So we've seen industry establish a whole variety of relationships with individuals who are in many cases deeply involved in the medical education or certainly in the medical community. So one of those relationships is being the developers or the initiators of new ideas in clinical practice, right? The inventors, 
And those folks are fundamentally critical to the evolution of science and medicine. We want them in education. But those who are inventing but also commercializing activities or commercializing their ideas are potentially very biased. So you have to be careful about how you nurture innovation and celebrate those individuals who are nurturing that innovation, while at the same time controlling what they can say and what they can talk about to ensure that you retain the balance in the education that's being presented. The other type of relationships were the ways industry were trying to support education itself through funding and the increasing expectations that they were placing on educational organizations to get that funding. And those were interfering with the independence of education from industry. And we had to work hard to create standards that kept industry at a very long arm's length away while allowing them to support and promote the growth of the continuing education enterprise that has to deliver fundamentally on the trust of the community. So those were balancing acts between the relationships of individuals and inventors and developers of ideas for the future of science and industry who has a strong interest in manipulating physician prescribing behavior and prescriber behavior, but also wants to support an industry that needs their help. So these are all balancing acts that created those standards. And since the standards have been published, and I know there was a kind of lag between the publication of the standards and the time frame for becoming compliant with them, have you seen changes in the nature or configuration of those relationships or how people are thinking about integrity and independence? Yeah, I think two of the biggest changes were first putting content validity as a core part of our standards and our promise to the community. Content integrity and content uh, accuracy was always fundamental to the way in which continuing education expects our educational providers to deliver high-quality materials. But it wasn't as visible until we made it standard one. Like our very first standard is about, it's got to be right. You can't teach stuff that's wrong, and you can't intentionally mislead a community. That is like the worst possible thing you could do. So the first thing that we saw was, I suppose, a reaction, somewhat of a soul-searching from the community to make sure that they had processes to bring more confidence to their activities, that they were ensuring that they were their materials were accurate and complete and not misleading, and that they weren't just covering salacious or popular topics, particularly those that didn't have enough of an evidence base to justify a treatment approach being recommended in a particular way. That was especially true during COVID, where we saw a lot of efforts Mm to, I suppose, commercialize a variety of untested approaches to the clinical care of patients that were controversial and difficult for for a lot of us. I think the other thing we saw was a lot of struggling with how to work with leading scientists and inventors, just like we were talking about, and how to incorporate them into best practices in education without muzzling them, because we don't want to muzzle our leaders of innovation while at the same time protecting the integrity of continuing education. So how to balance that out? We have a variety of mechanisms to allow that to happen. You can talk about as much basic science as you want, even if you're employed by a company that makes those products. You can talk about the how-tos of a device, for example, how to use a particular piece of equipment, those 
industry employees are often best at doing exactly that. Or you can engage in materials that aren't related to your product. So you can talk about supply chains or communications or some other elements that aren't whether and how to use a particular product being made by a company. So there's lots of ways around engaging those who are who are still really at the heart of discovery and innovation in medicine. And obviously integrity isn't it's not a one and done thing. The reports published there's ongoing work and ACCME has a long history in su- supporting the work of ensuring integrity. What are some of the other kind of initiatives that are ongoing around creating and maintaining integrity in continuing medical education? Yeah, well, we work hard to to practice what we preach, but also to continue to support and bring together the community around these common standards, because ultimately, they're not our standards. They belong to the community and they're created by the community and they worked on with the community. We didn't create fiats. We created a call for comment. We involved our board, a whole lot of listening sessions to create standards that struck the best possible balance of risk and benefit. Because we don't want just to want to create standards for the sake of having more boxes to check. That's really antithetical to what we're about. We're about achieving our goal of allowing a system to flourish that protects the integrity of the system, but also allows us to create education that we can trust. So the ways in which we've been evolving and practicing what we preach are two things come to mind. The first is delivering a whole lot of educational programming ourselves that supports the community in the application of these standards in their own day-to-day. And the second is creating an actual community that can support each other in the application of these standards so that we have an online academy, we have our annual meeting, we have a whole variety of resources, webinars, practice-based sessions, and collaborative uh, working groups that try and make the application of these standards and their evolution a real day-to-day endeavor and something that we're completely committed to maintaining a set of standards that are maximally relevant to the needs of the community and that are as light a touch as possible to reduce the workload on on those who have to navigate these standards to ensure that they're meeting community's expectations. And trust is closely related to integrity. I know you've written about trust quite a bit, especially with David Sklar and about the importance of learners being able to trust not only their teachers, but also the wider learning environment. In the context of accredited CME, how can those who are responsible for creating education content, you know, ensure that the learning culture is based on and driven by trust? Yeah, such a, a complex phenomenon, trust, uh, because right. very, very, very hard to gain trust, particularly amongst highly sophisticated professionals and, and super easy to lose it. Super easy. And that's true for us as a, as a regulator, as an accrediting body, as much as it is for an educational provider or an individual physician with their patient. But, uh, there's a couple of axes that our approaches organizations can take to develop trust. The first is to deliver, right? The clinicians uh, who are learners expect their professional society, their academic home, to produce materials that are relevant to them, that help support their best practices, and help them feel like and know that they are learning and growing. 
and that are creating an environment in which they can do that that feels comfortable for them, right? So those are ways of creating an educational home. And the more in which you do that and, and sustain that by continuing to do that, the more those, those communities will trust you. And next time you come and ask them to do something that may be uncomfortable or unwanted, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt and they'll do it with you and they'll build that skill, even if they may think, listen, I'm pretty good at this. I don't think I need to know this, but these guys are telling me I should. So I'll, I'll do it because I trust them. But the second thing is then creating that, that community, like you said, where it feels like the education is not just being delivered by experts, but delivered by people and a community that you've developed a trusting relationship with. And that can be about elements of diversity, feeling like you can live in that learning space and feel comfortable. Who are your teachers? Are they like you? Are they very different from you? Are there people in that community that you can connect with and work with? And that aligns very much with our strategic efforts to create uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, even anti-racism in the work that's going on in education so that you create that community, that environment that feels like it meets an individual's needs and a group's needs. And that's about having organizations start to look at themselves. Are they recruiting that person who teaches you know, rheumatoid arthritis because it's the same person who's done a great job for several years? Or are they teaching, selecting that person because they've taken a more open view as to how they solicit best educators, how they give opportunities to everybody to participate and be visible to the community in that way? And is the, is the teaching and leadership community of an organization reflective of their members? And if all of those things are being met, you increase the likelihood that that trust will be augmented just that little bit more and that you'll maintain that engagement of your audience group. And not only that, in terms of engagement, but also learning. Because people learn well when they feel comfortable and they feel like they're in a safe place to learn. And that comes from being in an organization or learning inside an organization where you trust you're going to be um, recognized and your needs are going to be met. So obviously, ACCME is doing a lot of work in that area. Are there parts of the wider kind of CME community where there needs to be a little bit more work on some of those issues around creating safe learning spaces, creating education content that is diverse in focus and content and faculty contribution, and that is also addressing those wider issues in society and, and culture around, you know, you mentioned diversity and equity, because a lot of CME does still kind of focus very much on specific therapies and disease states without necessarily taking in, you know, the wider context in which patients are sick and require healing and physicians heal. So I'm, I'm wondering if there are particular areas where the CME community needs to really sort of double down a little bit in terms of building trust. You, you make very good points because we feel the same way as you do, that it's not just about knowing what to do in a particular medical circumstance. It's knowing how to make the right decision for the patient that's in front of you. And those are different things because making the right decision for the patient in front of you has to solicit the patient's values and expectations and, you know, what's, what's accessible to them and what's uh, meaningful for them. And in order to do the right thing for a patient is a lot more than knowing the right thing to do in general for a particular circumstance. 
we're fortunate in medicine that the, the case example is a perfect foil for active learning. You take a scenario, a vignette, and you put it in front of clinicians, they will respond because that's how we're programmed. You know, we, we think like cases. And the, the opportunity for educators is to incorporate elements of diversity in terms of you know, patient types, but also values in the kinds of cases that they're presenting for clinicians to dwell on and, and noodle on, because that creates this type of self-reflection, particularly if it's a facilitated reflection about how you respond to certain circumstances, not just, you know, what's the right medicine to use, but as I said, you know, make the right decision. We've been doing some work ourselves, for example, just to survey and share the results of the diversity of our volunteer community, our board, our staff, those who are involved uh, with ACCME as surveyors, for example, and share that information with the community. And when we recently had a committee meeting of our accreditation review committee and shared these types of materials with them, it was pretty uncomfortable, right? Because we don't see the types of diversity, even though we've made a lot of progress, we don't see the, the spectrum of diversity that we would like to see. But as we talked about at that meeting, you have to start somewhere. And the first place to start is to know where you are, because you're, otherwise you're, you're just making assumptions and that's not a good place to be. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, I would say we have a lot of work to do to be intentional about how we recruit, to be aware of the choices that we're making um, as those who are educational planners who we're getting to speak, the content of the material, the kind of cases that are being represented in our material, how we're reflecting on not just the right decision, but how decisions are made, and then incorporating these multidimensional issues like communications or perspective taking from patients mm-hmm. so that we understand how to meet patients' real needs. And just for clarification, when you say we, you're meeting the wider CME community. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. not, just, not just ACCME. Yeah. This is all of us as, as teachers, yeah. as, as leaders for this community. We've been talking about education and lifelong le- long learning as something that, that we value. I do have conversations with a lot of clinicians who see continuing medical education as a checklist, as something they just have to get done. Yep. How do we respond to that kind of resistance? Yeah, well, we're, we're to some degree to blame for creating this scenario because in many ways, those who require continuing education for licensing or certification, as much as it might perceive, be perceived to be a boon for the education industry, is in many cases problematic for individual engagement and creates an opportunity for cynicism when you have regulators particularly dictating educational content for clinicians of this level of sophistication. I mean, if I try and teach you, Alex, how to count to 10, you'd be pretty upset with me and, and you'd feel pretty demeaned by that. And if you are told you must learn something and you're presented with it again, even if you're very comfortable with it and you know it, you'll be pretty irritated. And particularly if that is a regulatory requirement that you don't think is meritorious and you don't feel yourself learning that activity, that's extremely frustrating for clinicians who can do a lot of good with very limited time. So we have to do a better job of regulating the system to eliminate the degree of cynicism that is out there, and and there is a good deal of it. Having said that, we're making a lot of progress in making activities more meaningful and effective. 
And we've done that from a regulatory perspective by allowing a broad diversity of educational approaches to flourish and to get out of the way of innovation in educational design and to focus not on educational design, but on educational outcomes. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how you bring a clinician to perform that thoracoscopy better. As long as you can show me that when you teach her, she's able to do a better surgery, then how you got there, does that involve them singing in a circle and wearing yellow hats? I don't mind. You know, just show me that you were able to actually help people do a better procedure, build those skills, develop new insight, and we're good. We've also worked really hard to try and support innovation as a community through our outreach efforts, through our convening opportunities, through our meetings, through our online academies, to try and drive better practices overall out there. And that combination of features as a regulator have been intentionally designed to create the flexibility and nimbleness for an educational infrastructure that, again, goes back to this idea of meeting educational patients or educational needs. But the provider community out there has to take advantage of the creativity and the innovation that we're allowing them to express. And that's our continued encouragement through our commendation criteria, which try and promote innovation and and reward it, as well as the facilitation of, of the onboarding of those innovation skills. I love that you talk about sophisticated physicians. Can you just say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, adult learning theory tells us that uh, learners learn in very different ways, depending on the level of mastery that they might have over a particular content area. All of us have room to grow. And if you think of an individual physician as having maybe, I don't know, 3,000 competencies, you know, you have to be able to type, you have to be able to listen to what a patient is telling you, you have to be able to infer the best choices, you have to be able to talk and communicate a, a disease plan with your colleague to develop an action plan that's right. I mean, all of these things have to come together to be good at what you do. Uh, So mastery is a composite of literally thousands of different skills. And none of us could be excellent at each one of those skills, but many clinicians are excellent at quite a lot of them. The challenge for us involved in continuing education is helping an individual clinician see where his or her strengths are and give them opportunities for growth in those areas that that could sustain or benefit from additional growth and give them insight into where they might feel that growth potential or or benefit most, even if it may be surprising to them, or maybe uh, they might not trust the instrument you use to tell them or give them that feedback. So a lot of our work has been around trying to align assessment exercises from, for example, the certifying boards to the educational implementation of uh, rectifying gaps or building competencies for for clinicians. It's very easy among sophisticated people to, particularly if you get very little feedback, which most Mm -hmm. physicians get very little feedback. If you get very little feedback, you can become a bit complacent. You may think, listen, I'm great at asthma care. I've seen been doing asthma care for 15 years. I've seen lots of patients with asthma. I'm great at asthma care. But if you think there's four medicines for asthma, and there's actually really eight, and you think there's four medicines, what are you to know that you're not actually up to date because you don't think there's anything else out there and you think you're very good at what you do and you don't get much negative feedback? Sophisticated professionals can get caught in that trap of confidence not matched by competence in a changing environment. And as a result, to get that clinician back engaged, needs continuing education, 
It needs directed feedback and it needs educational approaches that engage that person and help them grow. And when you do that, you pierce the cynicism that can otherwise come from regulatory mandates. And so, and thank you for, for that. I, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, just to kind of wrap up, I suppose, you know, thinking in terms of growth for the field, you know, what does the future hold for accredited CME and how can practitioners in the community elevate its stature within, you know, society in general? That's a super big question, Alex. Yeah, I know, but right? It's a super exciting <laughs> one because our, our trajectory over the last several years has been to th- see through our data management infrastructure remarkable growth in not just the range and number of educational activities available to physicians and healthcare professionals nationally, but also remarkable growth in the amount of education each clinician is consuming on average. Even during COVID, when we saw substantial uh, reductions in the available numbers of activities, the engagement of physicians and other health professionals in those activities went up. So you saw a large-scale endorsement of the system and use of the system during the pandemic that has uh, grown even further since uh, things have have changed in, in 2021 and into 2022. So the system is is evolving and the the use of the system is growing, and uh, that's really encouraging. But it's growing not just because clinicians have greater appetite, but because the system, I think, is meeting their needs more and more. And that's because our regulatory system works to try and minimize burden while allowing very broad flexibility, which creates the opportunity for lots and lots of now 200,000 activities per year put on under our umbrella, 200,000 activities. We have you know, about a million doctors in the United States. Yeah many more millions of health professionals, but the number of activities and the range and diversity of content areas that you can find to meet your learning needs is simply vast. Mm-hmm. And there's therefore not really a, a need that it goes unmet by the community as long as a clinician goes after finding those educational gaps and then rectifying them through their own learning journey. So the future is is bright. I imagine that even with COVID and the transition to much more virtual learning environment that we saw, you see some more rebalancing back to a balance of live and virtual and, and online activities in the last uh, 18 months or so. And that's been interesting as an observer of this data to see, but probably reflects the common experience of all sorts of professionals in and outside of medicine that we are coming back to the office. We do benefit from being together of looking each other in the eyes as we solve problems and learn together, those are very powerful learning experiences, some of the most powerful. But that's also there's also great efficiencies to be gained from learning online and being able to consume very small bites of activities in two or three minutes of a video-based presentation, for example, that can be highly effective to meet the efficiency needs of, of very busy clinicians. So I'm optimistic for the future, not just based on hope, but based on the data and its trajectories but also on our commitment to ensure that we're out of the way of innovation, allowing it to occur, while at the same time minimizing the burden on educational providers, while ensuring that the system retains the trust and integrity that is our commitment to the public and the community at large. And are there issues around trust and integrity that we haven't touched on that are important to you in the work that you do? 
Well, I, I think the, the medical community continues to have responsibilities to navigate misinformation and its responsibilities to the public to be the trusted source of information for them. And in the last few years, we've seen a lot of threats to both the primacy of expertise and its value to the public and the com competing and sometimes very shrill voices of those who promulgate misinformation, sometimes unintentionally, but in many cases, unfortunately, very intentionally and with ulterior motives. Medicine has not always lived up to the expectations of our public. We know it. Uh, they know it. And there is a lot of healing going on to try and reestablish that credibility and trust. And that's a much more complex endeavor than we're even talking about today. So I do think there are issues in integrity in the whole profession and professions, but it's a journey that we're, we're up for and, and we're part of because content validity and avoiding misinformation and our responsibilities to be those trusted sources of information for the community persist. Graham McMahon, teacher, learner, champion of integrity and trust. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with listeners of Right Medicine. You're very welcome, Alex. Lovely chatting with you today. And if anyone can ever have any questions that is useful for us at ACCME, come to our website or just email us at info at ACCME.org and we'll try and respond to any questions that you have. And I'll make sure all that information is in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.